Welcome back to another episode of the In No Hurry podcast. I am your host, Colt Douglas Claiborne. Excited to be joined this week with Scott LaPierre, an author of a book called Your Marriage, God's Way, among other books. And Scott, I'm excited to have you on the show. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Cole. Yeah, glad to be here and have this time with you. I've been looking forward to it as well. So we were talking just before we recorded, uh, you published a number of books before this. You are a pastor. Uh, just tell us, tell the, the listeners a little bit about you, uh, if they're, sure. they're not as familiar with you. Uh, who are you? What, what are some of your, your main interests? And uh, ultimately, you know, we'll, we'll get into talking about this book, but uh, what's, what, what, are, what are some of your main passions that you, that you like to write about and talk about as well? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Cole. So I, I, uh, after college, I was an officer in the army. And then after I got out of the army, I started teaching elementary school. And that's when I became a Christian, pretty much thought I was going to be a school teacher and coach uh, for the rest of my life. Then I found my passion for teaching school uh, decreasing and my passion for ministry increased and kind of wanted to tell people to open their Bibles versus tell kids to open their mouth books. And then uh, (laughs) was able to transition into into a part-time ministry position. Uh, the church grew, they hired me full-time and that's when I left um, elementary school teaching. And that was all in California. My wife and I grew up together in Northern California. And then in 2010, we found Woodland Christian Church in Southwest Washington. And we made the move from California up to Washington. Uh, so we've been here since 2010. I've been the senior or teaching pastor of Woodland Christian Church. Uh, we have nine kids, uh, we homeschool and so we just, my wife and I got married, just wanted to let God give us what he wanted to give us, uh, you know, when he wanted to give them to us. And so could have had three or four, you know, some people seem shocked. We have nine kids and I'm like, Hey, look, I'm shocked. I have nine kids, <laughs> you know, so I was got almost the whole story. classroom right there. So you got out of yeah. the school and now you've got almost the whole classroom in your, in yeah. your household. Got more than a team, you know, for at least <laughs> a basketball. Uh, it's funny. I was looking at this picture of this family and they, and I was like, man, they've got a bunch of kids and they had seven kids. And then it occurred to me that I had more, more kids than they did. <laughs> So um, my wife turned 40, so I don't know if God will give us, give us any more kids. Uh, and if he does, you know, that's wonderful. And if this is what he has for us, you know, that, that's wonderful too. Uh, I write out my sermons really thoroughly. I study all week and have a really polished, refined, you know, we're talking about writing the two of us before the interview. And I'm kind of in that category. You know, some pastors are in that category of very abbreviated notes, just a word or phrase to jar their memory. I'm like the other side of the spectrum where I write things out very thoroughly. And I, I think I'm extemporaneous. I don't think it looks like I'm reading my notes, but that's because I've been pouring over this manuscript all week. And then I, I preach it and I kind of come down from the pulpit. And for a long time, my wife's like, you know, you're pouring your heart into these sermons and you end up with uh, could basically be chapters and books. And you really ought to think about turning these sermons into into books. And just like you and I are talking, you're like, I can barely fit anything else on my plate. I barely have time for, you know, we both, <laughs> you're talking about things you want to do. And I was in that season where I wanted, I wanted to publish books, but I just didn't, didn't have any bandwidth for it. And so I preached on marriage at my church for, uh, the joke was it was going to be the marriage month and it ended up being like the marriage year because this, <laughs> you know, we just kind of kept going on that topic yeah. and I was kind of feeling out my congregation and they seemed to be enjoying it. And I was enjoying the the studying and the, and preparation. And then I just had all these sermons on marriage and Katie's like, look, you, this really needs to be your, your first book. And so I self-published it back in 2016 and it by God's grace just did, did well. And so blah, you know, we were talking about Blythe Daniel a moment ago. And when I signed with her, she pitched my finance book, your finance is God's way and harvest house responded and said, Hey, we want to, we want to publish your finances, God's way, but we also want to republish Scott's marriage book. That's done well. Wow. 
And so then it was, so that's, sometimes I get emails and people are confused. They're like, do you have two marriage books here? You know, one of them is called Marriage God's Way. The other one's Your Marriage God's Way. So I've had to explain that different times. Yeah. But yeah, so Harvest House re- republished um, Your Marriage God's Way. But basically, I enjoy writing on Christian living, you know, uh, trials, finances, marriage, just regular everyday topics dealing with with life on this side of heaven as we serve the Lord. That's great. There's so much in there that I want to dig into. First, though, um, I, I probably should have mentioned this too. So I was a public school teacher as well and, and just oh, recently I left just left the profession after five years, uh, much, much like you were talking about, uh, had a lot on my plate and, uh, mostly, you know, I was dealing with a lot of stuff from the tornado and people that have listened to the show have heard us, my wife and I talk about it and things like that, but I was dealing with a lot of stuff from the tornado and a lot of emotions. And it was just, it's a really hard profession as people know. Um, and it was a hard thing to leave. I, I actually went back into journalism full-time, which is what I was doing before I became a teacher. And it's a, it's a field that allows me to do a lot more writing and kind of have more creative time outside of work. You know, as you know, teaching is all encompassing, whether you're mm-hmm. at school or not at school. Uh, maybe let's just start there in terms of, we'll, we'll get into the book in a second, but in terms of knowing and discerning what God was calling you to do because to leave a profession and, and do something different, especially one like teaching where you're kind of told, Hey, like you're in it for, uh, not, not for the, the outcome. You're or not, not for the income. You're in it for the outcome. All of these kind of toxic, positive statements that you hear. And <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of guilt associated. I think when leaving a profession like that, because it, you're, you're pouring into lives of other people and it can be, it can almost feel selfish to leave a field like that. And, and it takes a lot of courage to do that. Maybe people that are listening, just if they're contemplating leaving a, a career to do something different or, or not sure if uh, they're able to pursue what God is calling them to do. What was that season of life like for you? And how did you discern what God was saying to you? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question, Cole. So in my life, I felt such a strong passion for school teaching. I, you know, I was going in on the weekends and let's just say I didn't have much of a life at that time, wasn't married (laughs) and, you know, no kids. And so I'm just like in my classroom in the evenings on the weekend, loving it, loving the coaching. And then I became a Christian and just to find, and I, this is, you know, going on almost 10 years of, of teaching school. So, uh, and I was still very passionate about it right up until I became a Christian. And then I just really found this passion for ministry. And so for me, noticing the way that God seemed to be sort of shaping my heart and my, in, my passions, my interest was really significant. And it's, it's not to say that, um, you know, we're always going to want to do whatever God wants to do. But if you talk to most missionaries, pastors, uh, they're going to tell you, or, you know, whether home fellowship leaders, whatever, whatever area of ministry someone's serving in, they'll usually say they felt a strong pull from the Lord to do something. And I think that's really important because if something goes south in our lives, you know, and something isn't, doesn't seem to be going well, you can feel good about it if you were in God's will. Right. But I mean, if you stepped out and did it of your own volition, you know, you weren't prayerful, um, then you got to kind of question whether this is what God had for you, whether you, you made this, made this mistake or not. And so, cause I, when I stepped out, um, I know teachers might not get paid a lot, but in California, I had a, I had a master's in education. I was toward the top of the salary schedule. It was a, it was a really good amount of money for me. Um, and when I went into ministry, it was like half of what I was making as a school teacher, believe it or not. Yeah. So it was really like, I had to be, my whole point is I really had to be convinced this is what the Lord wanted for me at that time. Absolutely. Um, and so the church, and then the church stretched themselves to, to bring me on. Cause what actually happened, I guess my situation was a little easier. I, I had lost my 
Um, I switched school districts to make more money and I lost my nice tenured position. Mm. And then the economy tanked. This is 2007 and, and districts are, you know, the great recession and they're releasing teachers. And even though I wouldn't say I was a veteran teacher, but I've been teaching eight years at that district. I was a brand new teacher and they cut me loose. And then the church stepped out. I was working part-time and they stepped out to bring me on full-time. So there's a sense in which I didn't even feel like I had that much control over it. God was just kind of, you know, directing my life. And I was trying to be receptive to, to his will. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't realize that aspect of it because I was going to wonder, was there at any point, did did you have any doubt that what you were doing was the right move? I mean, I guess in some hand, on, on one hand, you maybe felt like your hand was forced, but did you have any doubts whenever you entered into ministry that, Hey, maybe I should have just found another teaching job. Cause I know that for some people, if they step out of a career that maybe they were used to and good at, and then they try to do something different and they run into a roadblock or something, it might feel natural to have those emotions. Did you go through that? And, and how did you navigate through that? Yeah. You know, that's a good question, Cole. And I'd say the doubt I experienced was associated with the new teaching position at the new district. Cause I, when I went into ministry, it's kind of like nobody's hiring. So when the church said that they would, you know, step out to bring me on, um, mm-hmm. I didn't really have any alternatives. So I didn't, yeah. <laughs> but what I really questioned was when I had switched districts, I thought, you know, did I make a mistake doing that? Should I have stayed in my previous district? And I remember driving to that interview and, and just praying and saying, Lord, cause what happened was the, the, the other district, the new district was on a Naval base they okay. received federal funding. I had military experience. They paid me a lot more than my previous district. I thought, you know, was I covetous? Did I, did I take a position for financial reasons when I should have stayed put? And I thought I was holding it pretty open-handedly. And so when I lost my job, I was like, Lord, did I make a mistake? And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, in hindsight, looking back now, I feel, I feel good about it, that the Lord was directing my steps. But I do, th- I do think there were questions like that. And I think that's why as we go through life, we're trying to, you know, be, I think the question is, are we, receptive to God's will? Are we living a surrendered life to him? Are we genuinely open to, to what he wants for us? Or are we trying to put open doors that he doesn't really want open for us? And if we feel like we're being receptive, then I think we can be a lot more confident when things don't go well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing all that. Cause I know some of those seasons can be hard to, to navigate and even reflect on, but I, I have found, at least in my experience, those seasons are, are really when my faith has grown stronger because well you're, you're, you're going through such an uncertain time and you really have no idea what to do. And you really have nothing else to do except trust in God in those seasons. At least that's been my experience. And uh, oftentimes, you know, it, it, it might require putting up with a, a little bit of uncertainty and confusion to get to where we ultimately want to. And for you, that has led you to, to being a pastor and writing this book and, yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you about this because marriage is such an important topic to talk about. And I know not everybody listening to this is married, um, but it's such a, it's such an important thing to talk about. I think just to understand God's intention for marriage, and maybe, maybe we should just start kind of at the, at the very basic thing. I mean, as Christians, you know, we hear it in church a lot. We, we talk about marriage and I, and I do want to preface it by saying, you know, I know that there are, like I said, there are single people that that are listening and God has called some people to be single and, and that there's beauty in that. There's a, there's a great uh, time in your life whenever you can really grow closer to God. Not that you can't during marriage, but single presents a unique opportunity. So mm-hmm. maybe you can, maybe you can touch on that a little bit from your perspective as well, but it, just in terms of, of marriage and why it is important. Uh, obviously it's important enough to you that you spent the whole year. You said talking about it at your church led to this book. Uh, and you kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the show here, but, why is this such an important thing for us to talk about and focus on and talk about 
the godly biblical parameters of marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, cool. So you, I'm trying to take notes here. You said a bunch of things. It took a lot of self-control to, to be quiet. I have a habit of asking too many questions at once. I just get going. So <laughs> it's fine. Um, I will say for any of the single people listening, uh, you're right. There are some people that have the gift of singleness, but it doesn't seem to be a very uh, frequent gift. Most people, the expected pattern is you, you know, you get married. And, and so I would encourage the single people listening to tune in just because that's more than likely what God has for you in the future. You know, and I, I was at this, I was, I put on marriage conferences throughout the year and there was a young lady, this, I'll never forget. I was, I, I saw her and I go up to introduce myself and she seemed kind of nervous talking to me. And I said, well, you know, what's wrong? And she said, well, I wasn't sure if you'd want, want me here. Cause I'm not married. And I, and she's, said, you know, what do you think about single people being at your conferences? And I said, I just think it's fantastic because unfortunately marriage is pretty much the one area of life that we don't prepare for. It's like, you know, you don't prepare for a test the day of the test. You don't practice for the game, the day of the game, you shouldn't start preparing for marriage, you know, going to marriage conferences after you're married. Hopefully you've learned about marriage prior to marriage. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important for single people to be, to be either reading marriage books or, or listening to marriage sermons. Um, Second, you know, why it's so important. I'm convinced that if we have strong marriages, we have strong families, we have strong families, we have strong churches, we have strong churches, we have a stronger society. And if we have weak marriages, we have weak families, you know, which lead to weak churches and then a weaker society. And so I really see marriage as a building block, um, you know, for families, for the church and for society in general. And so that's one reason I'm super passionate about seeing marriages strengthened and I've seen the effect in my own church. I mean, that's what led me to, to preach on marriage was you kind of, you kind of go to church on Sunday and nobody really shares about, uh, you know, the problems they're having, or, you know, you don't walk out to people and say, Hey, how are you doing today? And they say, Oh, my wife and I were having a big fight this morning on the way to church. People don't do that. But when you become a pastor, you, you develop a little more familiarity, uh, you know, with people's lives. It's, it's a more intimate relationship where you kind of get to see behind the curtain and learn and learn, how many people are are having issues. And I was surprised as a pastor, just to see how many hurting marriages there were even. And I, I like to think my church is, you know, pretty mature and conservative, but there was a a time I was talking with the elders and I said, you know, I I think there's a lot of struggling relationships here. And that's what kind of led to to preaching on marriage at the church. Um, Just seeing a need I'm supposed to, you know, according to Ephesians, I'm supposed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Mm -hmm. And I just saw this as an area that needed to be strengthened or equipped and, um, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners have children, but how many children are affected by the strength oh, or yeah. weakness of the parents relationship. I mean, you remember if probably when you're teaching school that their kids and if their parents are fighting, they can't focus, they can't mm-hmm. get their work done. You know, they're so distracted and, and it's the same in the church kids struggle when the, when the parents relationship isn't strong. So, I mean, I could go on on this, you know, but, but I just think it's incredibly important to have strong, healthy uh, marriages and and God said in Gen- in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. There's real detriment to being unmarried or single when God wants you to be married. Mm-hmm. There's so much that, that you talked about that I want to get into as well. There's a lot of good stuff here. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking about the the years that I had dating before I eventually met my wife, and then even the years dating her. And then our first, we, we, we'll be married five years here in December of 2022. Uh, and that's still relatively young, you know, compared to, to, to people that we associate with at our church and things like that. But what I've noticed, at least from my experience and, and friends of mine, I mean, it's a very stark change when you go from just dating 
to then now you're living with somebody, you have combined your finances, you have combined everything. I mean, you've combined every aspect of your life with this other person. And it is such a stark difference from where you go from just dating and maybe even when, when you're seriously dating and engaged, obviously that's sort of the middle ground, but you know, dating as a young person or young adult to then being married, it's very, very different. And I had a pastor, mm-hmm. the pastor who married us, who's the pastor of our home church, uh, always says, and I have a, a relatively strong opinion on this, but you know, you hear a lot of young people get told a lot, marriage is hard. It's gonna be the hardest thing you ever do. And I think what they really mean from that is like, there are aspects of that that are difficult. What our pastor would always say is life is hard. You know, marriage, you get to do that with somebody else. He's like, he always says marriage is not hard. Life is hard and that sort of a thing. And there's different aspects of that. But I think that there's, it's definitely a challenge because it's different. You're living with somebody else and you're combining all of these things. When you have maybe talked with or counseled young married couples, whether that's pre-marriage, post-marriage and that sort of a thing, what are, are maybe some of the pitfalls you have seen early on in marriages that have led to issues and, and what has been maybe the, the main ways that those couples have rectified that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Cole. And I, and it's some of it's kind of related to what you were saying that uh, marriage can be difficult. I think there's expectations shape experiences and most people go into marriage very starry eyed and expect, you know, they're going to be the first people in history, you know, with a marriage without any problems. I remember being at premarital counseling with, and they were talking and I'm not joking, kidding. They were kind of like, well, you know, this applies to other people, but we're going to get along perfectly for the rest of our lives and never have a fight, you know? And so, <laughs> and I think a lot of people kind of go into marriage and then they end up seeing that a marriage is so I agree with your pastor to an extent, but I, I disagree a little bit in that marriage is hard also because uh, it's two selfish, sinful people together. Yeah. Every every person is selfish. Every person has the flesh, sinful nature. Um, and you're putting two people and expecting them to do life together. And there's there's pride, there's covetousness, mm-hmm. there's Definitely. all these all these issues at work to really destroy the, the peace and joy that can be in a relationship. And so, you know, first I would tell people who are unmarried, Hey, uh, you know, expect there to be difficulty, expect there, don't, don't be, you know, too devastated when you have your first fight and think, Oh, you know, we're, we're, uh, we don't have a good marriage now. Pretty much everyone has, has, um, fights and arguments. And sometimes at marriage conferences, I'll say that. Cause I think I get up or have a marriage book or do, you know, I'm the guy running to do a marriage conference. And it's kind of like, Oh, you know, I don't want anyone to think that we have like a perfect marriage or don't have our own, our own struggles too. Um, well, what I try, what I generally try to do is invite people to consider that God is the author of marriage, and so it's His institution. He created us, and He knows what marriage should and shouldn't be. He knows what the roles should and shouldn't be. I hold to what's uh, to a strong what's known as complementarian view, and maybe most of your listeners know that what that is. But even if a few don't, just briefly, egalitarian is the view that men and women, or husbands and wives, are identical regarding their roles and responsibilities. I think that's completely unbiblical. Complementarian C O M P L E, not C O M P L I, means that husbands and wives or men and women complement each other or fit together well. And in this view, men and women are equal, but they're not identical. And so sometimes the world or, or the church even wants to act like if husbands are heads of the relationship or wives submit to their husbands or wives are expected to respect their husbands or, or husbands are expected to lead, then that means that, you know, there's not equality, but there can be, you can still have equality, even though you don't have an identical uh, relationship or role. And so in a complementarian role or view, I strongly encourage people to recognize the roles they have, what God has, the commands that God has given to husbands and that he's given to wives. 
and then do their very best to fulfill those roles or obey the commands uh, through the work of the gospel in their hearts, um, obey those commands that God has given them. And because that's where I think the real health and joy comes from. It doesn't, it doesn't come from making up what marriage is or isn't. It comes from obeying God and then allowing him to bless that obedience. And so, um, I mean, any, I think any honest reading of scripture shows that husbands are given commands that are different than the commands wives are given and their roles and responsibilities are different. And so some people are, might be unfamiliar with what God's word says. And that's largely what my book is. You know, it's called your marriage God's way. Cause I'm, I'm not coming up with anything new. I mean, I have some illustrations, but, mm-hmm. or I have a lot of illustrations and examples, but they support scripture. They don't, they don't come up with a new topic or something. It's not my opinion about marriage. It's like, this is what God's word says. Here's some examples that support that or illustrate it, but it's cause I didn't want it to be my opinion. And so the book is really dissecting the, the roles for husbands and wives and then the commands that are given to each of them. And so what I would tell people is you want to have the healthiest relationship with your spouse, you know, look at what God has said to you as a husband or you as a wife, and then throw yourself into being that for your spouse. Um, because, you know, we talk about walking by faith or, or, and I think sometimes people think walking by faith means like you go overseas as a missionary, you know, in <laughs> yeah. some third world country. Walking by faith is when you look at God's word and say, you know, this doesn't make sense. I might, I might not even like it, but I'm going to obey it. I'm going to walk it by faith because I trust, you know, what's best. And that can definitely apply to marriage, especially if some people are unfamiliar with what God says to husbands and wives. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of leads into the next, I guess, kind of a two-part question that I have here. I mean, you, you touched on it here. What does it look like for a husband to lead their wife spiritually. I think we hear that a lot in the church and depending on people's church upbringings or even example in the home, they may have a different view on that. They may see it acted out, which I mean, goes back to our parents really represent what that looks like. And if we get a bad example, then it can lead into our own marriage. Um, you know, what does that look like for the male, mm-hmm. the, the husband to be the leader of the house spiritually? And then secondly, what have you seen become issues that have challenged that? And and I guess some of the obvious would be a husband falls prey to pornography or things Mm -hmm. like that. You know, what, what are, what are some of the, the more prevalent issues you have seen that, that have, um, I guess, sins that have come into marriages that have caused that, that biblical structure of marriage to break pose a real threat yeah yeah so first corinthians 11 ephesians 5 it's very clear that a husband is called to be the head of the relationship most people understand that you know in the old testament that god is the husband and israel is the bride and then that prefigures or foreshadows the new testament where christ is the husband and the church and so a husband is to be to his wife what christ is to the church and a, a wife is to be to her husband what the church is to be to christ and so you know what does it what does it mean to be the head of the relationship it it doesn't mean to be a dictator. It doesn't mean to be authoritarian or, or obviously not abusive. Christ said, I did, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And so uh, a husband is going to, you know, Ephesians 5, 25, love his wife as Christ loves the church. It, it really means to be very sacrificial. You, you kind of, I tell guys, they come, you know, a guy will ask me, Hey, how do I know if I'm ready to get married? Well, first Corinthians 13, it says that when I became a man, I put away childish things, right? Well, for a guy to get married, it basically probably means to give up a lot of things so that his wife can be that supreme relationship in his life. Uh, I'm not saying guys can't play sports or ever play video games or, um, you know, whatever things it might be, 
generally when wives feel like second place, they don't feel like the supreme relationship. It isn't usually because of another woman. It can be, but most of the women I've talked to, it's because of the husband's poker night or whatever, you know, name it. And the the car he's always working on. And so if your husband feels like, or your wife feels like second place to something, you know, you kind of have to um, exercise that ruthlessness Christ described of like plucking out the eye or cutting off the hand and get that out of your life completely to make your wife feel like that supreme relationship, which, which basically just involves a lot of sacrifice is my point. And so being the head of the relationship, it it means, um, you know, sacrificing uh, for your wife. It means casting vision for your home. Where, where submission comes into play, if a husband and wife have talked about something at length, and, and I, I always share this at every conference and, and in my counseling, that you know, second only to the word of God should be your wife's input in your life. You know, there's yeah. no people who I'm seeking counsel from, and I serve with some really wonderful elders, but I'll, I'll go to Katie before I go to them, for, and right. I go to them, but it's like I expect God is going to speak through my wife to direct me and advise me. But when a husband and wife have talked at length about something and they hopefully much of the time you come to an agreement, but when you can't, who's, who becomes a decision maker? God has said that, you know, are you going to flip a coin or paper, rock, scissors? No, God says that at that moment, the husband becomes a decision maker and the wife supports the husband's decision. And I've had women tell me, you know, I'd submit to my husband if I could, if I could support his decision. And when a wife tells me that she's basically telling me that she doesn't understand submission because submission is entirely in place for when a wife disagrees with her husband. She wouldn't have to submit if she, you know, it's like with my children, my children don't have to submit to me or obey me when they're doing what they want to do. If I say, Hey, go play outside, you know, they don't sigh and roll their eyes and say, Oh, I don't want to do that. They have to submit when I say, go do your homework or clean your room. Right. And so submission is entirely in place in the marriage relationship for when a husband and wife don't disagree so that the relationship um, you know, can go forward. And it doesn't mean that a wife, in, in fact, the wife thinks her husband is making the wrong decision or she wouldn't have to have to submit. And I talk a lot about this in, in uh, I think two or three chapters of the book. The other thing you mentioned that I see as being a big threat is the wife is commanded to respect her husband. And you had mentioned pornography. And if a husband is looking at pornography or maybe he's being lazy, although I, there, there are a few things I've noticed that make it difficult for a wife to respect her husband. If, if he's a deadbeat, if he's lazy, um, but the bigger issue I've seen is pornography. When a husband looks at things that he shouldn't, it's putting an incredibly heavy load on that wife, expecting her to be able to respect a man that doesn't have that sort of self-control. And so for any of the guys listening, I would say, I'd say, Hey, you're asking you, you know, your wife to do something. I don't want to say nearly impossible, but incredibly difficult by, looking at things you shouldn't. And so go ahead and get some counsel. Um, there's a book it's called finally free by Heath Lambert with ACBC. I think it's a very good book. Go to your elders, whatever you need to do to get that. It's a, cause it's such a wicked sin to get that out of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, what the other threat, you know, just kind of in this conversation, Cole, the biggest complaint that I hear from women is my husband won't lead. I don't hear women complaining. My husband wants to lead or my husband expects me to submit or my husband, I, I just have women. I mean, you would think the way that submission is criticized so strongly by some people that it would be seem like this terribly archaic, you know, barbaric thing, chauvinistic, but that's not what I hear. I just generally hear women saying, I wish my husband would be a spiritual leader. I wish he would pray with me. I wish he'd read the word with me. I wish he would take 
take us to church. I don't, I just don't hear women coming and complaining and saying, you know, my husband wants me to submit to me and this is so terrible. I think women are longing to have a husband who will lead them and who will point the family toward Christ. Yeah. I think that that's all really, really good. And, and one of the things you mentioned there reminded me of a book that my wife and I read in our premarital counseling. It's called his needs, her needs. Have you ever read that book before? I haven't. I've heard of it before. Uh, one of the, one of the concepts in that book is, is this idea of a love bank. And what you talked about is when things go wrong, there are some men and women that if I have a, an issue at home or at work or whatever, if you're confiding in somebody else in the opposite sex, it, it's a very slippery slope where that's kind of how a lot of affairs get started is just like, Hey, I'm going to confide in this person at work. And then it begins to, you almost gossiping about your spouse and, and that's a very, very slippery slope. So the, what you said early on and when you were talking there a minute ago about how, you know, y- your spouse needs to be the person that you confide in first that you go through that, you, you know, aside from God, that's who you talk to. I just, I kind of want to hit on that as extra important because it might seem innocent at first, if you're just talking to somebody at your, at your job or somebody, you know, a friend uh, that's, it's very easy to, to let that slide into, into something else. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you want to chime in on that at all. It's just that yeah, concept I'll, again. I, I think that's, I think that's a great point, Cole. Um, there's kind of this idea that, you know, these things just sort of happen, you know, like you're walking along, you trip and fall, and then you're in an adulterous relationship. And that's just not true. I, I was listening to this uh, story about this guy, uh, a prominent uh, religious leader who had committed adultery. And one, one man commented and he said, when, the, when he fell, he didn't fall far. And what he meant by that is there had been so many compromises, you know, there've been so many steps down he'd already taken that that last step wasn't very far. And so it's exactly like you're saying about the slippery slope. And so it's a guy doesn't, you know, just meet a woman and then the next day commit adultery. It's, it's the long conversations in the break room, or it's, it's, you know, being a good listener or telling her her dress looks nice or just, just things like that. And there's, there's really, it's much better to keep you know, and I, and I have, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor to uh, half the people in the church are women. And I consider many of them friends, but I'm not going to be particularly close to them. And honestly, I don't want to be, and I've said this from the pulpit, I don't want to be the super good listener for you. If you're a woman, um, I can get my wife in contact with you or one of the other elders wise. If it, I, I've had women come up after, after sermons, I'll sit in the front pew with them, answer questions, talk to them. Um, but if it seems like it's going to be uh, a pretty deep conversation, I don't need to look like I have all the answers to some, to some woman. She can go, there could be other godly women that can invest in her. And so, you know, in the workplace, don't be caught alone in lengthy conversations with someone of the opposite sex. Uh, I mean, assuming you're married and yeah, that's just, it's always just those slight compromises that end up resulting in those situations. Yeah, the, the, the book referred to it as depositing into someone else's love bank. So you think about a piggy bank and the more change you put into it, obviously the, the bigger it grows and basically saying you don't want your love bank to continue growing into somebody else's soul whenever you're betrothed to somebody else. So uh, I, I thought that was a very visual example. And I guess- Good illustration. Speaking of money, I feel like we, if we're talking about- marriage, I think one of the big things we need to talk about is finances. I think one of the biggest issues that I have learned and seen uh, that, that maybe trips marriages up are, are finances. Uh, I think people mm-hmm. you know, don't agree on certain things or, or just they have different spending habits and 
it's very easy to let that become a huge issue. Um, and so not, not to necessarily focus on only the negative part of it, but you know, what, what, uh, what can you say about the importance of the Mm -hmm. finance aspect of marriage and, and to do that in a healthy way, what does that look like? Yeah, good. So, I mean, for any of your listeners, I don't expect all your listeners to know a lot about me, but my, my marriage book was followed up. So your marriage God's way was followed up with your finances God's way. And I only mentioned that just to, just to make the point that I've, this has been an area of considerable investment of time and energy. Uh, if I write a book, I labored in God's word over that topic. I don't, I don't come up with something out of left field. I mean, I don't have the bandwidth to write separately from my preaching ministry. And so if I have a book, it's because I preached on that topic for some length of time at my church. Right. And, and I preached on finances and then those sermons became your finances God's way. But one of the reasons I talked about finances was it's one of the big three. Um, it's one of the areas of problems, the big three in marriages, there's uh, in-laws and there's parenting and then finances are uh, the, the top three issues to count to you end up counseling. And you, you made a good point earlier. I, I caught it and I hope your listeners did too. You said when people get married and you're kind of alluding to two becoming one flesh, and you were saying, you know, you get one account, you bring your life together and said, and that is what should happen. Now, sadly, some people don't do that. There's really no place to have separate accounts, separate, separate lives and to do things behind each other's backs. And that's, that's what can kind of leave. As soon as you feel like you're having to keep something secret or private from your spouse, you pretty much know it's not something you, I mean, assuming it's not planning a surprise birthday party, there's almost <laughs> nothing you should really, really be keeping from, from your spouse. So if there's this nagging thought, oh, I can't let my spouse see this or know about this. That's almost pretty much an indication that it's something you shouldn't, shouldn't be doing, you know, purchases you want to hide from your spouse. So, so um, finances are a big dish, big deal or big issue or area of conflict simply because there can be such opposing views of what's purchased on debt savings. I'm, I'm, I have uh, premarital counseling with two couples right now. And one of the first things that I always try to talk to them about is finances. I want to find out, do you have the same view of debt, uh, giving, saving? Because if you, if you don't, and it might, maybe to them, it's like, oh, you know, is that that big a deal regarding being equally yoked? Actually, it's a huge deal because if one of you has a view of saving or debt or giving or retirement that the other one doesn't, it's going to be a big problem. You're going to be upset that your spouse, because finances can be such an area of um, anxiety. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people are like staying awake at night and they can't sleep, it's often because of finances. And so when one person is stressed about the finances and they, and then they see the other person, their spouse handling finances in a way that they don't agree with, it causes them to be bitter toward that person. Yeah. Uh, and that's how the conflict arises. And it's like, well, you don't care about me. If you cared about me, you wouldn't be spending money like this. Or you, you know, or if you cared about, and then the other person that's less frugal, you don't care about me because if you cared about me, you would buy this for me or you would let me buy this. Right. And so it's a real, it, it's very um, important to ensure you. Now, the nice thing, and I will tell people this, if someone's listening and they say, oh, well, this, this is terrible. You know, this is why we have marriage problems because we're so different financially. It can be very advantageous to have two people who are different because the person's, the people's strengths can, and weaknesses can complement each other. So it's actually really good. It's, it's bad if you have two people who are both terribly wasteful. Yeah. If, if you can have one person that's uh, frugal or saves, then that can really help shore up that weakness with the other person. How important is it for couples to budget? Because our pastor told us that that is almost like the constitution of the marriage, essentially. 
how important is it to have a budget, whether that's weekly, monthly, however, however couples want to do it, to have yeah. something that says this is where this money is going and this is our allotment for it and then sticking to it. How important is that? Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important. And I'll tell you, um, just in case maybe some of your listeners haven't thought about or ha- heard this before as a reason for budgeting, and I'll share it just from my experience counseling people financially. The reason that I think it's so important to have a budget is people don't realize how much money they're spending generally on small things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a chapter in my finance book. It's called an income problem versus spending problems. And most people don't have an income problem. They have spending problems, plural. If you live in the United States, you're, you're pretty much the wealth, some of the wealthiest people that have ever lived, you know, throughout human history. I mean, the, literally Cole, people in our country who live below the poverty line are wealthier than most of the rest of the world and pretty much wealthier than everyone throughout human history. Yeah. People live below the poverty line in our country and they still have many items that were considered luxuries like cell phones, televisions, vehicles throughout almost all of human history and even yeah. throughout most of the rest of the world. So if you're in the U.S., you probably don't have an income problem. You probably have spending problems. And one of the biggest spending problems is people is small purchases that add up is what I call it. I mean, that's the section of my book, small purchases that add up because it doesn't, it's like 20 bucks here, 30 bucks here, going out to dinner. The person who buys coffee, you know, stops at Starbucks on the way to work for five years, spends $7,000. And that can be shocking to people. And that's just coffee. What happens when you add in the number of times you eat out, you know, the, the term, times going to the movies or those extra items you buy at Target or Walmart, um, all that really adds up. But my point is you don't notice it adds up unless you have a budget that helps you see where your money has went. And so I, I completely agree with you. I think a budget is, is um, invaluable. And I think to take that a step further, a budget is only as effective as a couple's discipline is at following that. Uh, cause I know that, you know, my wife and I just speaking anecdotally, we have had issues with going over our budget. Uh, and I'm definitely guilty uh, of spending too much. We have a, what we, what we try to do was literally buy gift cards for our local coffee shop that we go to and put a certain amount of money on there. <laughs> and I, I I'm guilty of, well, uh, here's a, what's another drink here or there. And like you said, it adds up. And we were uh, mm-hmm. just talking today about how much money we've spent this month. And it's disgusting how, how over budget we went. And so mm-hmm. some, some months we do really well and some months we don't do as well. Um, but, but having those conversations for some people cannot always be as easy and maybe, uh, confronting or even receiving the criticism about spending habits can be difficult. And so couples that maybe want to, maybe they they need counsel on how to be disciplined and, and having those hard conversations with each other about finances, how have you counseled those couples you've worked with to do that? Well, one of the nice things you're making, you're making a good point. They can be awkward conversations. It's, it seems very personal, but the nice thing about a budget is it stops it from being personal because now it's not your spouse telling you not to spend that money. It's your budget telling you not mm-hmm. to spend that money. True. It's kind of like the, the way that I counsel. When I, when I counsel people, I rarely tell them what God's word says. I, I have them read what God's word says. So instead of saying, hey, this verse condemns you or this verse says what you're doing is wrong. I say, will you please read this verse, you know, read it out loud. And then you tell me what you think it means. And then when they read it aloud and they have to explain it, then it has a considerable witness against the behavior. Well, that's kind of like a budget, you know, a budget can testify against your spending. So you don't have to have a husband condemning his wife or a wife 
condemning her husband. And so that's one other really nice thing is that it sets a ceiling or boundary. It acts as a rail for you to prevent that very personal argument between the husband and wife having to having to say you shouldn't do this and then all the justifying and everything. Because if you set a budget ahead of time, then it's already determined what you're what you're going to spend, you know, um, and not spend. And so and I, I generally tell people that you're in there's kind of two categories of people. There's people who are still in debt and there are people who have paid off all their debt. And you live differently, whether you're in one of these two categories. Until you're completely out of debt, then you're going to be living differently than when you're totally out of debt. So don't try to live like everyone else when you still have, you know, tens of thousands of credit dollars of credit card debt or, or car payments or something to, to pay off. But once you reach those milestones, then you can loosen up a little bit and live a little bit, enjoy a few more things you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole other conversation we could have there about comparison, which is about, uh, that's the, the book that I'm writing that we talked about beforehand, that it's mostly about comparison. And, and that plays into that where people start spending money that they don't have to keep up with people. And that's, that's a whole other issue that I see with, with couples, especially in my age bracket, because you see people buying houses and things that they can't really afford. And you think I've got to keep up with that. And you really have no idea how much debt they have. So uh, I don't, I don't know if you want to touch on that at all, that aspect of it. I mean, do you see that at all with, with young, with younger folks? And it could yeah. be any age, but I do see it, especially with my age group, because it's about the time where people are starting to have kids. They're starting to buy houses. And if you're maybe wanting that stuff and you don't quite have it yet, it can get really uh, easy to fall down that slippery slope of making concessions and then putting yourself into even more debt, which just leads to more problems. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Cole. You're, you're touching on something that's really important to me. I preached on covetousness and contentment for a season at my church, and social media has been just devastating because it causes you to think everyone else's life is better. Yeah. You know, their marriage is good. Their children are beautiful. Their home is better than yours. Their vehicle is the trips they go on. You know, the trips are fancier. And it's just not real life. Um, now, I can, I guess I, I'll say I contribute to the problem. I don't, I don't put ugly pictures of my kids. You know, I don't put pictures of my wife and I when we're, when we're fighting or something. I want to put, you know, I have social media and I, I want to put nice photos of my family and things like that. But what it does is it causes other people to look on and say, well, their life is so good and our life is, is so bad. And it creates this real discontentment. And, and I've, I've noticed um, some people I've, I've spent time with who were literally completely fine with something, whether it was a vehicle or a house or a trip until they saw that someone else had something better or different. And now they're discontent with what they have or covetous, which are almost discontentment and covetous can almost be, you know, they go hand in hand. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's very, it's, we need to be cautious of, of what we look at and, and cause our hearts can start to be set on, set on desiring those things. Yeah. I, uh, I heard a, a, a pastor preach one time just about how he wondered, you know, if you, if you had the choice to go on a vacation and you either could go to the, the most beautiful place in the world, but you couldn't take a phone and uh, you couldn't take any pictures, you couldn't share about it, or you could go to just kind of a, a standard ho-hum vacation and you're allowed to take all the pictures and post about it all you want. But like, and the first one was all, all expenses paid for. You wouldn't have to pay for anything. Most people would take the option where they could share about it. And it's just so, mm -hmm. it's so uh, prevalent how, how prone we are to falling into social media traps and, and being covetous of that sort of a thing. 
mm-hmm. and I, I want to, I guess, kind of tie a bow on, we were talking about single singleness earlier, and, and there might be some single people that are listening to this and, you know, they're hearing all this and maybe a lot of this applies to their personal life. And somebody listening to this, they might be preparing themselves. They might be preparing their heart for marriage. They may, they may have somebody they're dating. They may be completely single, not dating anybody. Um, how can people prepare themselves and prepare their heart for marriage with some of these concepts in mind, uh, you know, whether that's a relationship with God that they're trying to strengthen, maybe that's praying for their spouse. Uh, some people like to do that, pray for their future, future spouse. Yeah. Uh, what are, what are some practical ways that a single person can prepare for what they hope can become a godly marriage? Yeah. And we're kind of dealing with this, uh, as a family, you know, my kids are getting older and I've got a, a dot. My oldest child is a, is a girl, and she has grown up, she got eight younger siblings. I mean, she's pretty much wanted to be a wife and a mother her most of her life. And so I'm having these conversations with, with my kids and I'll just tell your listeners the same thing that I would tell my kids. Um, if you want a godly spouse, you need to be a godly, a godly person. I, I find it hard to believe that God's going to bring a strong Christian to marry a, a spiritually immature Christian. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is you're not going to know what to look for in a spouse if you're unfamiliar with what God's word says about a godly spouse. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I, I think it's wonderful to be familiarized before you're married, familiarizing yourself with, if you're a guy, know what God says to husbands so that you know what to be like as a husband, but also know what God says about wives so you know what to look for in a wife. If you're a young lady, read what God's word says about wives so you know what to be like as a wife and read about husbands so you know what to look for in a husband. Because a lot of women, I, I found it more with women than men. Women come to me and they're, and they, I mean, I'm not joking. This, this woman called me yesterday. I don't know her, never met her, couldn't tell you what she looks like. She was on the phone with me for like 45 minutes. Uh, she cried most of the time, telling me how, how terrible her, her marriage is. And uh, there's not much I could do, Cole. You know, it, I mean, this is who she married. If this guy is half as terrible as she says that he is, what am I going to be able to do on the phone to fix this? Not, you know, and I'll be at marriage yeah. conferences and people come up and they want to talk to me for five or 10 minutes and I can't change who they're married to. I couldn't change who they're married to if I had days, weeks, or months to do so. Say nothing about it in a five minute conversation. And so it's really important that, you know, people don't settle and that they understand that the person that they're considering has their best foot forward right now. People, I've heard this so many times. I hoped he would be different. I hope to be better. He's not, you're going to actually right now, he's got his best foot forward because he's trying to win your hand. So what you're going to get after you're married is probably going to be a step back. So make sure you like how far along <laughs> he is at this point. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's, that's good stuff. And like you said here, even in this short, you know, 45 minute conversation or so, we're not going to touch on every aspect of marriage. And, and I, I hope people that are listening will definitely pick up your book. Uh, the, the last thing that I do want to talk to you about, we haven't talked a ton about parenthood yet. Uh, I'm not quite a parent. I, I hope to be a parent one day. Uh, you were obviously a parent of, uh, you, you said seven, nine kids, nine, nine kids, nine uh, children. So, so, so you've been through the gambit with, with parenthood here. I, like I said, I, I don't have any kids yet, but I know from being a child, uh, how having kids around impacts the, uh, romantic marriage relationship of two adults. And so, you know, if a, if a couple is welcoming, I think especially their first kid, whenever it's brand new, but really any kid, it changes the dynamic of the family. I think it's important for couples to still continue, you know, making a, a regular date night each week, if they can doing something to maintain that romantic relationship, that, 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 uh, 
covenant bond that you have, uh, you know, agreed to whenever you got married, how, how can couples navigate that change when Mm -hmm. children are introduced into the scene? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I hope, I hope I have some credibility to say this because of nine kids, (laughs) that's, it's like nine kids is like nine threats to your, you've you've got quite a bit of experience, I think with this. Yeah. (laughs) So, so what I would say, um, first Katie and I, she got pregnant pretty quickly after we were married. So we, we didn't have a whole lot of time, just the two of us. So we've never really, we've always kind of been fighting for time together, my wife and I. Um, and my kids, they like, you know, they'd ask me, Hey, who, who's your favorite? You know, who do you love the most? And I say, that's easy. I love your mother the most. And it's, it's important for kids to know that you love your spouse more than you love them. As much as I love my kids, I want them to know. I mean, I have plenty of weaknesses and failures as a father, but I believe my children know that I love them um, dearly, but I still also believe or hope they know that I love their mother more than them. And what that means is like earlier when I talked about your wife being the supreme relationship in your life and nothing, mm-hmm. not making her second place to anything, there are some women who feel like second place to the children. And there are some husbands mm-hmm. who feel like second place to their children, to their, you know, when it comes to their wives. And the, I mean, it's very easy mothers being very nurturing, uh, motherly to then prioritize the children over. There's a guy in, the, in that I'm, I'm uh, friends with and he'll tell me, he's like, as soon as we had kids, our marriage went down the drain because my wife cares more about our kids than she does about me. And she's waiting on, waits on them hand and hand and foot, but I can't, she won't prepare me, you know, worry about me having dinner or anything like that. Uh, And I think there's, there can be a lot of truth to that. So the point is it's, it's a tough thing to say, but you have to make your children take a backseat to your spouse. So you have to tell the kids to go to bed. You got to tell them to stay in the rooms. You got to say your mother and I are talking now and, and let them know just, um, let them in on the reason this is important. Tell them you should want your mother and I to have a strong, healthy marriage, because if we have a strong, healthy marriage, that will benefit you. But if our marriage suffers, you guys will suffer. So because you care about us and about our marriage being strong and healthy, that's why you should go to bed right now. That's why you should leave us alone. Or that's why you should babysit the baby right now. So that your mother and I can have this, have this, or sometimes if we don't get to go out a lot together, we'll get gift cards you know, we'll go out and the kids are like, Hey, you know, you bring in us. And we're like, no. And, and I don't know if they think we look selfish, but it's like, no, it's really important for your mother and I to have time together just the two of us. So I would say to communicate, not just to do those things, but also to communicate them to the children. Yeah. I think that's, that's really good stuff. We, we have tried to establish having a date night every Friday night uh, each week. And that's something that I hope we can continue uh, when we do have kids. Cause it's so important to spend that time alone. And, and I think mm-hmm. even, even when you go into that, I think you can take it even a step further and make sure that, that you're spending undistracted time alone, because I think it's easy to, to get out, go out on a date and yeah, theoretically you're, you're look at your phone them, or, but you're looking yeah. at your phone or, or, you know, I'm guilty. Sometimes we go to a place and they've got a ball game on TV, you know, watching the ball game and, and not always, you know, having my attention on my wife. And so I think it's, it, it's, it's a step further, like make sure you're spending time with them, but also spending undistracted time uh, mm-hmm. with them. So Scott, this was, this was great. I really enjoyed talking uh, with you about all of this, your book, uh, your marriage, God's way. It also has an accompanying workbook uh, that, that couples can go through. How, how do you, uh, in, in your mind, how do you see couples going through this workbook? I mean, is this something yeah. that churches can do as well? And, and obviously couples can do it just the two of them, but uh, yeah. how can they use this resource Good. along with the book? Yeah. Thanks. Cause I, I actually feel like I've had to explain this different times. Um, 
I'm not trying to sell. People can share one book. I mean, if people want to get two books, they can. I'm not going to stop them. But people can people can share one book. But the reason they can share one book is they shouldn't read the book together. They should do their workbook separately. So they each need their own workbook. You don't want to be answering questions about your wife while your wife's looking at you, right? Or answering questions about your husband. So you do the work and the workbook separately. And then when you have your date night, you come together with your workbook, with the answers in your workbook. So you said you and your wife have the date night. You don't do the work in your workbook on the date night. The date yeah. night is when you, so do the work separately, come together and, you know, bring the book with you, but bring the workbook and talk about your answers for um, small groups or churches. They can go through and do like one, one chapter per week and, and end up with a nice uh, group study, I think to help, to help marriages. And so, yeah, uh, I'm happy to provide copies people can find the books on amazon christianbook.com barnes and noble pretty much wherever books are sold they can find your marriage god's way and your finances god's way perfect yeah i was gonna ask you where can i find that you've got a website as well uh www.scottlapierre.org all that will be linked in the show notes so if you missed all that check the show notes all those links are there and then social media where can people connect with you uh, and follow you yeah, good. So I've got a I've got a Facebook ministry, I have my personal Facebook page, but my Facebook ministry page is where people would see my resources, sermons. Um, also, my YouTube channel has videos of my sermons, guest preaching Perfect. messages, conference messages, things like that. But based on my website, that's kind of the hub. From my website, you can find books, um, you know, social media, other things. So yeah, scalapier.org. And, and there's a contact page there. If people need to reach out to me with any questions or something. Perfect. And Scott, the, uh, the, the final question I do love to ask my guests, uh, my show is called In No Hurry. And um, the idea with that was, you know, and it kind of goes along with marriage, you know, we talk about having a date night and, and making sure you're spending time with people, but we live in such a hurried culture and, and we're always uh, distracted and, and on the doing go, other yeah. things and on the go, um, especially as it relates to marriage, you know, maybe with you and your wife, what are some things that you guys do to make sure that you do pull back from any of the hectic stuff going on in your life? You've got nine kids. What do you do either personally and or, uh, you know, in, in your, your marriage relationship to pull back from that craziness and really be able to reconnect with God, but also reconnect with your wife? Yeah, great. So I would say, um, I think this probably the case for people that not just pastors, but I, I feel like I could work from the time I get up to the time I go to bed, you know, and there's still more in my inbox and my wife taking care of the house and all of our kids. There's just gotta be a point you say, this is enough for today. I'm not, I'm not working anymore. And now I'm going to invest in my family. And so I think the Christian life, the Christian life is obviously saying no to bad things, but the Christian life is also often saying no to good things. Like, ministry is a good thing, but to prioritize my wife and kids, I'm often having to say no to good things to prioritize the best things. And so for, for a lot of people, it's saying, it's not, it, they have to say no to sin, but they're having to say no to work. They're having to say no to overtime. They're having to say no to responding to that email or text message to have that life that's, you know, unhurried and investing in their, in their time and energy in the right places. Well, perfect. Scott, uh, again, really appreciate this. Uh, I encourage all the listeners to, to check out Scott's books. Again, you could find those pretty much anywhere that books are sold. And then I assume you've got links on your personal website to yep. find all of that too. Uh, so check all of that out and make sure you, you connect with Scott. And uh, Scott, we'll have to have you back on again down the road for your next book, uh, whichever, whatever that ends up yeah. being about. I'm excited to see that. So Thank you for, for the wisdom and the conversation today. And uh, again, encourage everybody to get this book and uh, connect with Scott for sure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for all you're doing, Cold and Minister to People, and privileged to be on here, uh, you know, in a small way to support you and your, your listeners. So God bless you guys. Well, many thanks to Scott for joining me this week on the show. 
I really enjoyed talking to him about this book and his heart behind it. And whether you're married or not, I really hope you were able to get something out of this conversation. As we talked about at the end there, be sure to check out his social media and his website as well. Go purchase his book and especially the workbook. I think that's a great companion piece to go with this book. You can do that with your spouse. It's a great way to really dive into this book and really get to learn more about your spouse. If you are new here, thank you so much for joining me and checking out the show this week. It really means a lot. would love for you to stick around for future episodes. And in the meantime, connect with me on social media. I'm at Cole Claiborne on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me on Facebook as well at Cole Douglas Claiborne. And then you can find my website, ColeClaiborne.com. I've also got a Substack newsletter that I would love for you to subscribe to. If you go to any of my social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, all of that, you'll see a link tree. And in that, you can find links to subscribe to my newsletter. But as always, thanks so much for tuning in this week. Hope you guys have a great week. Hope you find some time to relax and not be in a hurry. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs>